Good morning. Good to see everybody today. I'm excited about what God has got to say for us and to us today in Revelation 22. So we will almost finish today. Almost finish. Um, I'm afraid we would be here until tomorrow if I did it all. So let's, uh, let's start with something that happened in 2004. In 2004, something happened in baseball that had never happened before. And baseball's been around forever, right? Adam, Eve, baseball. I mean, it's just crazy how long that, right? So in that year, in the ACLS, American League Championship, ALCS, American League Champion Series, the Yankees lost to the Red Sox after being up three games to none in a seven-game series. Boston came back to win, and no one had ever come back from three down. Anybody in here a Red Sox fan? No hooting and hollering. There's, right? Back then you were, huh? Any Yankees? Wow, I guess being in the South is intimidating. Yankee fans are not bashful. Um, so um, it, the reason it was such a big deal was not only because they had done something that had never been done in baseball, but then they went on to win the World Series. And the reason that was significant is because it broke the curse of the Bambino. Now, how many of you all know, okay, how many of you have heard of the curse of the Bambino? You don't even have to know anything about it. Okay, good. Finally, got a pulse. Okay, good. So the curse of the Bambino it goes back to the early 1900s. When baseball started, the very first World Series was won by the Red Sox, and five of the first 15 World Series were won by the Red Sox, and in large part, that was due to the Bambino, also known as Babe Ruth, okay? Didn't know he played for the Red Sox, did we? So he played for them, and they did well, and then, I love the way the the Wikipedia explains it. It says, the Yankees bought Babe Ruth from the Red Sox. (laughs) They didn't trade for him, they bought him. And maybe that was the terminology, and maybe that's technically what they did. But he ended up being a Yankee, and it changed the fortunes of the Yankees Uh, to which we think of them as we know they're the dominant team in all of baseball over the long haul. They've won twice as many World Series as the next best team. And a large part of that started with Babe Ruth. Out of that came what became known as the curse of the Bambino. Now, most people didn't take it seriously unless you lived in Boston. But there's, uh, there's this thing called the curse of the Bambino. And for the next 86 years, the Red Sox did not win the World Series. And every time they'd play the Yankees, they'd bring up the curse of the Bambino. And so there's this sign, and there was this sign in Boston. I don't know if we've got the image or not. Uh, Back in the days before they did symbols for road signs, they did words. Reverse, so the, the sign was just reverse curve, and somebody did a little editing to the sign because the curse of the Bambino, I mean, that's just telling you, they're, they're working on road signs. Now, they, the road signs are a little old up there. They've been around a little, a little while. So... I I share this with you to say this, um, that curse was reversed when the Red Red Sox won the World Series, okay? Now, when I think of of reversing a curse, I think of the curse today. The curse that started in Genesis 3. And if we're at the end of the Bible, it always is a good idea to go back to the beginning and refresh where we started. So if you've got your Bible, if if you will, turn to Genesis 3. We're going to read a few verses out of there. How many of you, when you binge watch or just finish watching a series on on Netflix or whatever you stream, go back to the beginning when you finish the series and watch the first one. How many of you have ever done that before? 
wow, not very many. I've heard so many people do that, but apparently that's not a, a real common thing, yet, at least not here. Well, maybe that's because you guys are all reading your Bibles and not watching anything. That's awesome. I know that's what, what it is. Okay, uh, I feel better now. Okay, I do. I go back and I watch the first episode sometimes. All right, so what I want you to do here is I want, we're going back to the beginning, and I want you to see where the curse came from. Because we currently live in a world that is cursed. If you don't believe me, watch the news. If you have any pain in your body, you know it's true. If you suffer emotionally or mentally from any kind of anguish, it's real. If you get anxious or worry about things, then you understand a bit of the curse. If you've ever delivered a child, and I'm talking about the women, not the doctors, then you know about the curse. If you've ever had a fight with your husband or wife, you know about the curse. And there's a hundred thousand other ways I could describe it to say, we live in a world that is cursed. This is where it came from, Genesis chapter 3. Now remember, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are creation accounts. They're two different versions. One focuses in on humanity in chapter 2. The first one is kind of the, the six days of creation. But in chapter 3, the story here is Adam and Eve starting to be people in the Garden of Eden. Okay? Now whether it was a real literal place or not really doesn't matter as far as the, what we're going to learn here. I think it was. I think it's real. I think Jesus referred to it as history. So um, I'm there. But if, you know, if I'm wrong, it doesn't change the takeaways here. That's why I have confidence in God's word. I'm going to misunderstand things in this book. But it's not going to mislead the person who's sincerely seeking the Lord and how to follow him. I'm just convinced that that's God's way of saying, I'm going to carry you through, I'm giving you all that you need, imperfect though you are, imperfect though your translations are, I'm going to get you where you need to go using this word. And that's really at the heart of what we're going to talk about today. Do you really trust and believe that this word is trustworthy and true? Do you really, really believe that? So here we go. Now the serpent, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals in the, the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? Let's pause right there. What's he doing? What's the serpent doing? The serpent, of course, is Satan showing up. And we know that from later in Scripture. We, it's a symbol of, of, of the devil, Satan, the accuser, our adversary. Did God really say? What's he asking um, Eve to consider? Is God wrong? Can I trust him? Can I believe his very words? Written, spoken, doesn't matter. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And of course, God didn't say that. And, and Eve rightly corrects him. The woman said to the servant, you may eat fruit from trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. That's accurate. But then she adds, and you must not touch it or you will die. Not so accurate. Verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman outright lie for God knows that when you eat from your eye when, when you eat from it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil okay there's some truth there maybe it's totally true but she will die she does die physically and spiritually most importantly verse 6 when the woman saw you're going to see the threefold ways of temptation this is also echoed in first John when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, she took some and ate it. 
And then she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Hello, wake up. Man, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What did they do? What did they do that was so bad? They disobeyed their daddy. All those teenagers just slid down in their chairs, right? All of us could slide down in our chairs, right? They disobeyed their daddy. Why did they disobey God the Father? Because they ceased believing that what he said is always true. And they chose to believe a lie instead. In that moment, they chose to think, this serpent knows something that our creator doesn't know. This serpent knows something that's maybe I can trust him more than this God who's holding something back. Or maybe he didn't quite say what he said or mean what he meant. And so there's doubt. And this is at the crux of everything you and I struggle with. Do we really believe his word enough to actually follow through in our actions? Okay, so let's look at the consequences of these actions. Then the, I'm in verse 8 now. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now he doesn't need to ask because it's not like he doesn't know, right? This is all, there's purpose behind these words. Where are you? He's searching, okay? He might even be asking you today, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now remember, they live in a world where, and I don't know if anybody else is there. The text says there's no one else there. But all they know is naked people in the garden, okay? And they're not embarrassed because that's all they know. It's kind of like dogs aren't embarrassed when they're covered with nothing but fur. Now I get it. It's fur. But that was just, and now all of a sudden, it's very awkward and uncomfortable. Because something has changed. Something fundamental has changed. The curse has arrived. And he said, verse 11, Who told you, God said, who, do, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Make no mistake, it was not a suggestion. The man said, the woman you put me here with, she made me do it. How many times has someone confronted us on something we've done? And I'm not just talking to the teenagers. And we've immediately pointed to somebody or something else to blame instead of owning the responsibility that we should be owning. Okay? Don't hold it against Urban Meyer right now. Okay? His team is doing horrible. And they just haven't won a game yet. Jacksonville Jaguars. But his theme for the year, record notwithstanding, is a really good theme. He says, own it. Take responsibility for what you're supposed to do on this team. Now, you could say, well, it doesn't seem to be working, and then you'd have a good argument there. But, but, I, but the principle there is all over the scriptures, okay? And that is, we're to take responsibility for the things that we can control. And we're to trust God with the rest, which is the majority of the rest. So he said, the woman put, you put me here with, she gave me some of the fruit, and I ate it. Forget the fact that God told Adam not to eat the fruit. He's the one he told He's the one who didn't stand by the words of God. I mean, for all we know, the only reason Eve knew was because Adam was the one that told her. And to have less confidence in him, well, you could probably make a good case for that. 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And Paul will make a big deal about that in 1 Timothy. We won't go there. But uh, that's where he goes to make his case. Verse 14. So the Lord said to the serpent, here come the curses. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust in all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, that is her, cru- her offspring, will crush your head, and you and your offspring will strike his heel or crush his heel. Now, this isn't the point of this, but I cannot not say something about this right here, okay? So, sidebar, aside, however you want to look at it, this is the first prophecy that we know of, of Jesus, the cross. So, here's the short version, Okay? He will crush your head. Who is he? He is the offspring, uh, seed of Adam, offspring of Eve, eventually down the line, Jesus Christ. Okay? And the way he crushes Satan's head is he defeats sin and death, shame and guilt, hell itself at the cross. Okay? It looks like Jesus dies, right? On the cross, he dies, and all his followers are distraught because we have lost. That's the second line, and you will strike his heel. Okay? I'll just ask you, which would you rather someone do with a hammer? Take it to your heel or take it to your head, right? One's fatal and one's just really, really painful. Satan gets the death blow. Jesus gets the heel. That's why he dies on the cross, but he comes and he is back. He is alive. This is the prophecy of that. All the way back to Genesis. All the way back to Adam and Eve. It's part of the curse and it's also part of hope in the midst of that. The second curse is to the woman and she, where God says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And this is that enmity even between husband and wives that can be there when we're not at our best and we're grappling for power or control in those relationships. Part of the reason that's there is because of this. Okay? And it's just the sinful nature and lack of submission, mutual submission in the marriage relationship that leads to that. Third curse, to add wife and ate fruit. And guys, don't take that and run with that, okay? Because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit, okay? Listen to your wives, your wife. <laughs> because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food and, it will, and from it all the days of your life. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And there are equivalents to that in the business world. Don't just because you're a white-collar worker doesn't mean you don't have the weeds to deal with. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you will return. Hence why we bury people. Adam, Adam name, okay, I don't need to go there. Okay, so there, there's where the curse came from. And we want to see that curse reversed, and the curse will be reversed. That's the good news of chapter 22 of Revelation. The curse is reversed, and it's going to happen in a place called the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and the new Eden. Now, we don't talk about, you don't hear that, the new Eden. What's that about? Well, there was an Eden, the Garden of Eden, and that's where Adam and Eve began. Life began in the cradle of society there in the Mesopotamian area. Where is the Garden of Eden today? I've got some ideas, but we don't have time for them, and they're not really that valuable anyway. But we can still flip to Revelation 22, and we can learn a lot about the new Eden. So the first six verses we're going to look at are going to describe Eden. And then verses 7 through 9 
We're going to get two invitations from God of something that we can be doing in the meantime. As we anticipate Eden, here's what we can be doing. Now, there's seven invitations in chapter 22. We'll do the other five next week. All right? But here's the, here's the first two right after the description. So let's go through the description here, starting in verse 1 of chapter 22 of Revelation. Eden restored. Then the angels showed me the river. Remember me as John, the apostle. Then the angel showed me, John, the river of the, of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Okay, so if you remember last week, we, we brought in, I brought in a little cube, and, and the cube is, is what is described in 21, Revelation 21. This, the new Jerusalem isn't on the ground on a plateau in Israel. It's in the air coming down, and it's massive. Okay. If you were to take the measurements literally, it's 1,500 miles cube. Okay? And if you think about all the, all the people of God in all of history living in one city, if that's where they in fact are going to be, it's got to be big. And so that size actually, actually adds up, a, it makes some sense. But it could be symbolic and we're not going to get hung up on that either way because the truths are still there. God is in the middle of that city. God is the temple of that city, right? Tabernacle, God wants to be in the tribes of Israel and camp around it. In the temple, God wants to be in the midst of his people. So they build the temple and all of Jerusalem is around the, the location of the temple. Wherever God goes, he wants to be in the midst of his people. Why? Because he's got the words of life. Well, why does that matter? Because if the people will believe the words of life, that will lead to prosperity in all the best ways that prosperity can lead. In all the ways and things that matter. Not just financial. Remember we talk about the, not just financial, but it leads to intellectual health, phys, health physical health, Relational health and spiritual health. Relationship with God, which makes our relationships with people good. All of these things are fruit of walking in belief in the words of God. While the curse hasn't been broken globally, we don't have a new heaven and a new earth yet, the curse has been broken in the hearts and minds of those who know and trust and follow the Lord Jesus. That means you and I today can live as if there's no curse. It doesn't mean we're not affected by the curse. We are, but, it, but we can live above and beyond in spite of that curse, okay? And you're going to see that play out here, okay? So again, he's describing future history. He's describing what this future Eden is going to be like. And, and from all appearances, Eden is in the city. I don't know that it's limited to the city, okay? We just don't, we just don't get a lot of detail. So we have the water of life. If you remember in the original garden, there were four rivers, and uh, we have the Tigris, Euphrates, and two others I can't remember the name of, which we don't have anymore, apparently. And then here we have the water of life. Down the middle of this great street, and the river flows from the throne of God. So that tells us the throne of God is the place of authority and provision and power. The water flows. Water represents life. There's movement to it. It's pure. It's clear. And it, it's essence. In essence, it's a, a, a tangible manifestation of life. Drink it and you have eternal life. But not just eternal life, abundant life. Because let's think about this for a second. If I were to ask you to raise your hand, and to anybody wants eternal life to raise their hand, probably everybody in here is going to raise their hand. But we need to be more specific. Because you don't want to live forever unless it's good. I promise you. You do not want to live forever unless it's abundant life. 
Okay? And we in the church, we get sloppy with our language and we say eternal life and we mean heaven, eternal life with God and, and the new heaven, the new earth. And we, by implication, mean it's going to be good. But everybody's going to live for some, somewhere forever. Some in the lake of fire, some in the new heaven and the new earth. So let's be more specific. We want abundant life. And this picture is abundant in life. Look at this. We're going to see nourishment from God in all of this. We're going to have, we have the living water to drink. And then it says, flowing down from the throne of God in the middle of the great street, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Now, if I had time, I'd take you to Ezekiel 47 and 1 through 13. And in those verses, it basically describes this, but that's like 700 years before this was written. Because remember, Revelation isn't anything new. It's all from, it's all a retelling of what's already been written in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. So we have this river coming down, and we have this tree of life. Now, in Ezekiel, it says there's trees down both sides. But it doesn't say that here, does it? It says, there is, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. That sounds a little odd to have a tree standing on both sides of the river. Okay, this is what I picture. Gene is going to probably flip when I say this. I picture the sequoias in California with the tunnel cut where the cars have driven through. I'm like, well, maybe the tree's so big it bridges the river. Because the tree is on both sides. But here's the thing. Again, symbolism try to tell us something that it can't, we can't really see the picture and understand. And so what I think the takeaway is what matters here. What it says is, it doesn't matter which side of the river you're on, you're going to have access to the tree. I think that's the takeaway here. There's more takeaways about that because the tree does some pretty cool things. This is quite the fruit tree here. It's on either side of the river, even though it's one tree. It bears 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Ezekiel says there's all kinds of trees. So my, my, what I'm hearing is multiple kinds of fruit, variety, abundant fruit, no limit. Sounds pretty good to me, okay? Except y'all are still looking for steak. I understand. We don't understand the way food works in heaven, and there's a lot of... It's going to be better. Trust me, Golden Crow's got nothing on the new heaven and the new earth's buffet. I promise you. Not even close, Okay? Twelve crops of fruit, yielding his fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. It says that in Ezekiel as well. So um, while we say there's no more pain and no more suffering in heaven, that doesn't mean people can't get injured. doesn't mean you can't get cut. And you just take a leaf and you just, boom. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know, but there's a reason to have leaves of healing there. Okay? Maybe it's to heal some scars. Maybe it's to heal some wounds. I don't know. I, I don't know how much of that we're going to take with us. I've got to imagine the grace and mercy of God is just going to overpower any of the pain and suffering we have here. But for whatever reason, there's a need for leaves of healing, and they're free. No HMO required. No whatever. No insurance required. No longer will there be any curse. There it is. Verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. The curse will be reversed. Now, they did go back to that sign. And I, I didn't give them this picture, but there's a picture of, of um, the governor of Massachusetts, and they're, they're putting up a new sign that says the curse reversed um, on that Boston Road over that, where that bridge is there. And, and that just, the, there's no longer going to be a curse. But today, we can live as if there's no curse in our lives, okay? That doesn't mean there's not the influence of that from the world. It means that I can, in Christ, walk in the freedom of from that curse. 
The blessing of God is another way of saying it. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Okay, so the throne, the power, the seat, the authority is all right there in the city. Okay, at the head of this river that's in the garden, that's in the Eden, the new Eden. And his servants will serve him. Now the word for servants here is the same word for worship in the New Testament. The Greek word is latreo, something like that. Latreo, latreo. And it means worship in some context, and it means serve in some context. So I'll give you an example. So in Romans 12, 1, I learned this in another translation, and then I'm learning it in, in, in I learned it in NAS, and now I'm le- reading it in NIV. And so basically the verse goes like this. Um, Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable act of service. That's NAS, I think. I may have this backwards. NIV, I think, says this is your spiritual act of worship. Reasonable act of service, spiritual act of worship. Service, worship. They're trying to make that word mean what they think it means in that context. And the tension is, no, it's about worship. No, it's about service. Yes. You get it? We worship God by serving him. We serve God with a worshipful heart. And if you're not doing those two overlapping together, then you're not getting it quite right. Okay? All right? And when we think of Hebrews 13, 15, and 16, he tells us that we worship him with the lips, the fruit of, the fruit of lips that bless or praise his name, and sacrifice of praise with the lips, sacrifice of praise with our lives. Okay? Well, when you think about, the, when I think about praising God with worship, I think of the fruit of lips. But everything I do has the potential to be worshiped. Isn't that what he says in Romans 12, 1? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, which I just talked about for the first 11 chapters of uh, Romans, offer your bodies. What is that representative of? Your whole life. Offer that to God. How often? All the time. That means when I'm awake and when I'm asleep. When I'm getting up from bed, when I'm going back to bed, when I'm walking to work, when I'm coming home from work, school, home, Wherever I am, I am to offer my body, my whole life as an act of worship to God. And I'm serving him to worship him. I'm worshiping him as an act of service to him. I do it with my lips and I do it with my life. Okay, that's the attitude we carry into this. Why? Because he's reversed the curse and he's given us the words of life that lead to blessing and, and lead us out of the curse. And so that people, when, they, when we rub up against people in life and they see we're different because we're not yielding to the curse, They're like, what's up with that? You have a story to tell. You have something to say to that. That should fire you up. I should be seeing smoke in the seats. Fires me up. All right, here we go. So then he says, this is amazing. Oh my goodness. Verse four, then they they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. He will, right? How many times have you wanted to see Jesus? Face to face, right? It's like if I was only one of the 12, I'd believe. Well, you wouldn't have to. You'd be right there, right? Because we're not going to have to. He's going to be there, and he's going to be there in all his fullness. To the, I mean, we're just going to get to see God. I don't know how. Probably in every facet you could ever imagine. And then it's just going to keep increasing in a number of different ways that God's going to reveal himself to you and me. Because he's infinitely God. And that's just, there's variety and beauty and amazement in that. But then he's going to do this. 
He's going to put his name on your forehead. Now, that sounds really weird, right? It's like, I don't want to walk around with anybody's name on my forehead, okay? I don't even want go tigers up there. I don't, I don't want anything on my forehead, right? That just sounds weird, but it's symbolic. Think, folks. What does his name represent? His name represents his character. Now, do you want to be known as someone with the character of Jesus? Would you like to be known as a generous person? A patient person? A very gracious and merciful person? Would you like to be known as a person of justice, but only when appropriate, because mercy is also there? Would you like to be known as a person who, who is loving and joyful and patient in traffic? Would you like to be someone who is gentle and yet strong and in inner strength that's not wimp or limp, it's just strength but gentle at the same time? Would you like to be known as a person who's only angry when it's extremely appropriate, which is in the almost never except in the face of injustice. That's what it means to have his name on your forehead. Okay? But when we live as if people, like, if we, as we live, if we think we still are in this curse and we're cursed, then we're not going to want anybody's name up there. Okay? It's kind of like, what's on the back of your car? What's, what stickers are on the back of your car? You know, I put the first sticker on my, I have another vehicle now, and I put the first sticker on yesterday. And I have, I debated. I couldn't find it, but I was really debating. Should I put anything on it? Because what are you doing? You're saying something to the world. And of all the things you could say, what would that be? And is that what you want to put on there, right? Like if you put a fish on your car and then you cut someone off in traffic, I don't think they're going to praise Jesus for you in that moment. And well, what's that fish about anyway? And so I was like, oh, what do, because, okay, I'm not the most gracious driver Okay, so do I want to put a Jesus sticker on there? So that, I, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, do I want Jesus' name up here? Because then I have, it's not that I have to live that. It means that I, because I, I want to live that, but I have to be consistent. Hypocrisy, I don't want to be that guy. So let's just leave all the stickers off. And Jesus, keep your name. No, no, no. You want this to be true for your life. And if that's true for your life, you're not going to be proud of it because it's not because of you. It's because of his grace and his mercy in your life. And you'll be like, yes, thank you, God, for your grace that allows me to walk in consistency. Blessing. Verse 5, there will be no more night. There will not be need for the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. That's the description of the new Eden. Now, the two, um, the two invitations are pretty brief and to the point, but they are challenging and also very encouraging. So then we shift, verse 6. The angel said to me, that is to John, these words are trustworthy and true. Okay, now let's get back to Genesis 3, right? Did God really say, doubt, doubt, doubt? Okay? You're reading online. You're reading on the Twitter. And people are saying stuff and bad-mouthing Christians and things that we believe, okay? And sometimes you just get mad or sometimes you lash out. Sometimes you just go, well, that's kind of true. And you start to wonder, am I being taken for a ride? In other words, can I really trust this? Folks, if you believe this is true and you try to live this as if it's true, you are in an extreme minority, okay? Don't go with just the political... Um, statistics on evangelicals, okay? That's a whole political definition, okay? I want you to think about how few people you know that do that. And if you don't know many people that don't believe this, then you need to get out. 
because the people we're trying to reach don't. These words are trustworthy and true. The angel says this, okay? The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And then it says in verse 7, Jesus is speaking, and Jesus says, Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written on this scroll, in this scroll. Blessed, not cursed. Blessed. You want to be blessed? Do you want to be blessed by God? Okay, it's not a rhetorical question anymore. Do you want to be blessed by God? All right. So do I. I also want this thing to hang on my ear right. All right, let's try that. Do you want to be blessed by God? Yes, we want to be blessed by God. Okay, well, who is blessed? According to this, it says the person who's blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. They obey it. They obey the word of God. They want to obey it. This is not a twist my arm, make me obey Jesus. This is I want to obey because I know it's in my best interest. Because I will be blessed, not cursed. To keep it means to practice it, to do it, to live it consistently, ongoing. Now here's the amazing thing, or maybe the troubling thing. Look what he says right before that. Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon. Now if you have a reason to doubt God's word, this is a pretty good reason right here at least on the surface. Jesus said in AD 96, through the vision to John, I'm coming soon. What year are we in? 2021? That was year 96. Do the math. Not soon by my definition. Soon is how many more seconds on the microwave before I get something out of that that is hot, right? So, you can understand why people would say what Ashley read out of Second Peter. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will scoff. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. Verse 4. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Now, when was Second Peter written? Probably about 40 years before the book of Revelation. So people were only 20 years removed from the resurrection... And Christians were going, he's coming back soon. He told us he's going to be back any time. And then Revelation is written. But even before, 20 years before Revelation is written, people are already scoffing. Yeah, yeah, he's coming back soon. Yeah, I'll believe that when he shows up. Yes, you will. Absolutely. But what else does he say? Verse uh, 5, but they deliberately forgot that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of the water by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed, referring to Noah's flood. Verse 7. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. That means God's going to purify the world, the new heaven and the new earth, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's the justice of God, the holiness of God at work. Verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. Because Peter's writing to dear friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. As some understand slowness, the world, those who are scoffing. Instead, he is patient with you, and here's why it feels like he's delaying, because he is doing this for a reason, not that he's late. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
That's the compassion and mercy of God, even in the midst of the justice of God. That's why we say the cross is the intersection of justice and mercy. He is going to judge sin. He has judged sin. He's going to judge sinners. But he's also wanting to love mercifully people into the kingdom. Okay? And that takes time. And so he said, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to bless my people by doing it through them. That's why we're still here. Otherwise, he'd just take us home. There's, nothing, there's no more discipleship that needs to happen in heaven. I promise you, those people have no problem believing the truth that sets them free. They are free because they're in the presence of the truth. We are not. We do not see him face to face yet. We still live in a world that's cursed and broken. We have lots of excuses and reasons to not believe and trust that this is trustworthy and true. We have lots of reasons to believe it as well. Okay? We have to decide whose lie we're going to blow off and whose truth we're going to believe. Okay? Because everybody's saying they've got the truth and nobody is trustworthy anymore. Right? I mean, we all feel this frustration watching the news. Who can I trust? There is not a news source that I know of that's trustworthy other than this. Okay? This is it. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Verse 8. It's like John signing the end of the letter here. I love it. He's like, I saw this stuff. And then he is blown away. So the first invitation is to keep his commands and receive the blessing. Okay? So if you're writing this down, obey God is the first invitation. And the second one is worship God. Watch what happens here. He is so overwhelmed because he's going to see the Lord soon. And he's going to be blessed as he keeps the words. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and... When I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship. He was good up to that point. And then all of a sudden, we realized, no, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But the angel understood and corrected things. But he said to me, the angel that is, don't do that. Okay? Now, I got to tell you. Every time we see an angel show up in Scripture, it feels like people want to worship the angel. That tells you how awesome they are when they show up. Okay, we're not talking about little fat babies with harps. We're talking about impressive, intimidating, powerful, perfectly holy beings that show up in our world and and they make Superman look like an action figure. Oh yeah, he is. All right, so then he says... Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you. A fellow servant with an angel? And with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. He just elevated those who walk with him. Did he not? Is that not amazing? Do you realize that Hebrews says that when we arrive, we will rule over the angels? We'll be higher than the angels? Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant. And then he says, worship God, exclamation point, end of verse 9. Worship God. There's the invitation. And we've already talked about worshiping him with your lips and your lives. Worship him 24-7. It's not a come sing a few songs and that's worshiping God. That's a way to worship God. We're commanded to sing. We're commanded to praise. But it's not only when somebody's playing the keys. It's when you're breathing. (laughs) Okay? Verse 10, then he told me, 
don't seal up the words of this prophecy in the scroll. Now, this is in contrast to in Daniel when he's saying a lot of these things in the book of Daniel. I think it's chapter 12, maybe. He says, seal it up because this is about the end times. Well, hello. This is about as end times as it gets, right? He's like, don't seal this. I want people to know about this. I want to encourage people and I want to challenge people and I want to warn people. So don't seal it up because the time is near and we'll talk about that more next week. And that's where we're going to stop right there. So, so the, uh, the curse is reversed. So I want to share a poem with you. I don't do poems, but this one's good. This one is by one of the guys that I relied on heavily on this series, a commentator named Jim Hamilton, James Hamilton. And he, he writes his commentary, I highly recommend, on the book of Revelation. It's in the Preach the Word series. And he, he writes so a little bit of poetry. And usually when I get to poetry in a fiction book or nonfiction book, I just move right around it and move right on. I did read this one. And I went, wow. So... This is a great summary, and just forgive the, I'm not good at reading poetry, but here we go. This is the book that tells the story of the Lord in all his glory. The world's creator, strong and free, ever one, ever three. He made the world and made it good, his image placed in Eden's wood. Rebellion there wrought sin and death, loss of life, end of breath. But when the Lord there cursed the snake, a solemn promise he did make. The woman's seed would crush his head, on evil he would tread. From Eden then there was exile, because God's presence they defiled. And in the story of this book, we read of all it took to raise man up and set him free in God's presence again to be God's mercy here is on display and so to you I say behold the book of hope and life it sings of Christ and how through strife he did indeed on evil tread dying he crushed Satan's head then rose again to justify all those who on him do rely for he alone this work can do, he alone can save you. And so this book to you I give, hoping and praying you will live. By faith and promises made here, trust replacing all your fear. Trying to make sure I got to the end. I think I did. Yeah. It's a good story because it's true the curse is reversed or it will be it's kind of like the kingdom of God it's here but not yet we look around and we see America the beautiful not so beautiful and we grieve as American citizens part of the reason we grieve is because we've seen better days and part of the reason we grieve is we really know that this isn't really what it's all about at the end of the day this isn't our home there's a kingdom and the king speaks words and people believe and follow him at his word. Because why? Because he said it and he's trustworthy and true. And that's what he calls us to. He calls us to do that personally. He calls that, us to do that as a family at home. And he calls us to do that as a church family 
as the body of Christ local, as the body of Christ global. And when we do that in step with each other, as diverse as we are and yet unified in Christ, there's nothing more powerful, more potent, more beautiful than that. And the world takes notice and they respond in one of two ways. They're drawn and they want to kill. Those are the two extremes. Those are the two responses. And we must be prepared for both. We make disciples of those who are drawn and we love our enemies in the meantime. Let's pray. Lord God, as we try to figure out how to do this in real life, (laughs) we realize how inadequate we are for the task. Maybe even overwhelmed. Lord, you tell us to not be anxious about anything. That includes the future. That includes the here and now. Do not be anxious about anything. You tell us, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, that we're to present our requests to you, humbly, gratitude in our hearts. And you tell us that when we do that, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. That's good news. Help us believe those words. Help us believe that the antidote to anxiety is to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. To make disciples of those who are leaning in and to love our enemies as ourselves. Because they're our neighbors too. And if it costs us our lives, so be it. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Lord, Lord, believing your word in our head is a whole lot different than believing your word in our hearts through our actions. We cannot do this without your supernatural help. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to pitch his tent in our hearts so that we have that help today. He obliterates the curse in our hearts and sets our hearts and affections on you. May we live as if that were true. In Christ's name we pray.